Welcome to the Food Intelligence Podcast brought to you by TasteWise. My name is Ron, and I'm here as always with Miriam. And today we're going to be talking about the end of healthy eating. <laughs> Let's get into the episode. Okay, so Miriam, um, I have a joke for you. I think it is. Yeah, you uh, really amped up this joke this week. I've been hearing about this joke for uh, a full week, I think. Well, I mean, I, I'm going to be happy to disappoint you because, I mean, <laughs> you know you know what to expect at this point, but I am very mm-hmm. proud of it. I can't wait. Okay. Hit me with it. And it's because we're going to be talking about some healthy eating. So d- uh, did you know that uh, humans actually eat more uh, bananas than monkeys? Really? Yeah, I don't even remember the last time I ate a monkey. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, if we're thinking about the full, like, scope of dad jokes that you've told, that one is up there. It's pretty good. I would say, yeah, like, top right quadrant of... (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, chaotic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's, like, lawful chaotic, lawful, like, all of that. I would would put that in the lawfully good zone. (laughs) Yeah, just, like, not terrible, not offensive. Yeah, Um, except to monkeys, perhaps. Except to monkeys. Um, So we talked about this a little bit on uh, our last episode um, about the end of healthy eating, uh, or the decline of, um, of health as kind of a key motivator to, um, uh, to purchases, uh, of food and beverage. Um, so let's start there. What do we mean when we say that healthy eating is over? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it was an inflammatory remark on purpose, um, cause it's something that we think is really, really interesting and worth exploring. Uh, we got a lot of questions about this, so I want to unpack it a little bit today um, at the start of the podcast. So the end of healthy eating, um, that does not mean that people do not care about health and wellness anymore. Um, on the contrary, people really care about health, health and wellness. Um, what we mean by the end of healthy eating is that the word healthy or the concept of health as this general umbrella term is no longer sufficient for today's consumers. Um when I and I love this example, and I think it really drives the point home. Um, when someone used to, let's say, order a salad because they wanted to be "quote unquote" healthy, right? They wanted something that was going to bring, uh, kind of, amp up their their health and wellness. Um, that is no longer sufficient, right? Um, people are ordering food and beverage. Let's take that salad example because they're looking for specific support on specific niche health categories. So they might order that salad because they want to support gut health, right? Or they want to support, they want to boost their skin health. They want anti-aging properties. And they're looking for something to, you know, boost their metabolism. And um, so as consumers are becoming much more uh, sophisticated, um, and that is a word that comes with no judgment. It just means that there's so much access to information about health and wellness in this digital era. And um, the consumers are, are more aware than ever before about the impact that food and beverage has on the specific aspects of their health. Um, so when we say it's the end of healthy eating, we mean that health is a general broad term that kind of encompasses, it's a one size fit all term, um, it no longer fits consumers because consumers themselves are no longer one size fits all, right? Um, they're complex, they have diverse needs. That same person who's ordering a salad for gut health on a Monday might have 
a plant-based burger on Tuesday for you know protein content, and on Thursday might eat a steak out with friends for a birthday party. Right? Um, there's no one way of being a consumer really anymore. Um, and specifically within health, we see that that is absolutely true. So you were just mentioning how it's not uh, that uh, the concept of healthy eating is in decline. It's just that it's becoming uh, much more specific. So with this kind of breaking out into very specific niches like um, stress relief or sleep or, you know, gut health, brain health, all these different things. Does that mean that there's now more kind of space for experimentation or innovation within this space of healthy eating? Do you think consumers are kind of ready for things that are a little bit more out there? Or are these, or is this change happening just in a few established like uh, subcategories? Meaning from the motivation perspective or for the kind of the wider range of food and beverage, like experimental, uh, let's say flavors or ingredients that accomplish those health needs or the health needs themselves? Which, which one do you, are you asking about? I'm more, I'm more asking from the perspective of the uh, CPG companies who are making a lot of the, both the the products themselves and the ingredients. Um, do you think that we'll be seeing um, more niche products that serve these motivations and maybe that, that maybe feature uh, new ingredients or like new innovations that uh, you get mad at me when I say new innovations? Innovations. <laughs> innovations. <laughs> Old innovations. Yes. Old innovations. Yeah. I think that's an interesting question. I think that we are in this current moment not going to be seeing, and by current moment, I mean in the next, you know, six months to a year. Um, I think that, you know, we all know that the CPG innovation process takes a little bit longer than that as it currently stands. Hopefully that will become faster and more efficient. Um, but in, I would say in the next six months to a year, we're going to be seeing not necessarily niche products or, you know, innovation that's centered on um, hitherto unknown, if you will, ingredients um, that are kind of, you know, uh, unfamiliar in the mainstream. I think we're going to be seeing Cl more classic ingredients and classic products, so things that are more established in the mainstream, but being associated with these more niche health claims more frequently, if that makes sense. So it's less that we're going to be seeing completely new ingredients becoming all of a sudden mainstream trends. What we're going to be seeing is ingredients that are already kind of making their way in the food and beverage landscape, right? Whether that means that they're already really well established or they've already started emerging um, into more mainstream popularity, we're going to be seeing companies making honestly, great decisions, better decisions to associate those with trending health needs. So I'll, I'll give you an example of that. For example, gut health, right? Gut health is up 200% over the past two years. So we'll, we'll kind of benchmark that to the start of COVID roughly two years ago, a little bit more than two years ago. But since the, the start of COVID, um, consumer interest in food and beverage that supports gut health is up 200% year over year, right? That's astounding. That's a huge amount. Um, and that comes with uh, this kind of rising um, knowledge or expertise, let's say, uh, as consumers understand the correlation between gut health and immunity, gut health and general wellness, right? Gut health and skin health. There's an entire constellation of needs here that gut health helps accomplish. Um, so I think what we're going to be seeing is that gut health, right, is going to become much more associated with the ingredients that are already established in the market. So, you know, if there's, for example, um, a granola company, and I'm just, I'm throwing an example here that I've seen recently, um, a granola company that, uh, you know, already uses ancient grains in their cereal, in their product, right? Um, understanding that, that those ancient grains might support gut health, right? For people who are conscious of gluten or conscious of their consumption around grains. Um, and so they're going to be calling out gut health a lot more. They're going to be creating recipes, um, let's say with that product, right? That are paired with other gut health supporting ingredients. So I think that's the direction we're going to be seeing in the next, you know, six to 12 months. 
Um, and obviously continuing on beyond that, I think we're a little bit farther out from these out of the box flavors and ingredients. Um, so for example, uh, you know, it, and especially, and this is like, we could do a whole other podcast episode on this and maybe we will about the role of, um, especially, uh, kind of Eastern cultural influences on the health and wellness movements in the West. Um, so, you know, Ayurvedic, uh, uh, ingredients or ingredients that are used in Ayurvedic uh, cuisines for health and wellness, right? So I think we're a little bit farther away from that becoming mainstream um, and, you know, major CPGs incorporating that into products. But I think that that's, that's coming. Um, it may not be explicitly called out as being Ayurvedic, but I think we're going to see that influence um, continue. But yeah, so the answer to your question is yes. And um, as all good improv students know, that we're going to be seeing um, a, a transition towards classic flavors um, or established flavors and ingredients being associated much more frequently with uh, emerging functional health needs. The the first one that you mentioned was ancient greens. Is that the... Ancient grains. Yeah, yeah. So like... Ancient um, grains? Mm-hmm. So grains, meaning anything from, uh, you know, barley, wheat, amaranth, things yeah. like that, um, which are typically in... Uh, <laughs> it makes sense. Grain-based products. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I, I, I was not aware of the the use of the word ancient. Ancient, yeah. So I'll explain it. what it means. It it means that uh, the way that they are farmed or sourced and produced are are so. Um, the way that the industry is currently set up, and the way that um, agriculture has continued over the course of human history, that we've genetically, um, you know naturally selected, let's say, or I guess unnaturally selected for the hardiest grains, right? So ways to continue agriculture practices that allow us to create more and have it last longer, right? Um, but what that means over the course of time that we've reduced the diversity of the actual grains that are used in the world's agricultural system. Um, so ancient grains are actually grains that are sourced from the original kind of um, biological makeup, and I'm not using the right words here, but like the, the organic nature of that grain is actually sourced back to thousands of years. And so it is inherently actually more um, robust and oftentimes healthier for human guts than the mm -hmm. currently genetically modified version, if that makes sense. Um, it's amazing. not in and of itself necessarily like a non-GMO type of thing. It can be, but um, it does mean that it's like, there's more intention put into how it is actually farmed and sourced. That is amazing. I probably I, sounded to those that are listening that I know this kind of thing. I probably just sounded like a kindergartner explaining that, but that's my understanding of it. Um, but <laughs> it's interesting. For me, who who didn't know any of that, that sounded amazing. <laughs> I was just going to say that you know there are some people that every single conversation you have with them, you learn something, and like you are definitely one of those people. Huh, that's um, nice. <laughs> so we we talked a little bit about um, kind of this. Um, let's call it a, a category or a market, um, breaking off into a lot of uh, niche kind of categories or markets. Um, sure. Even with that happening, uh, it's still, all of these markets are, are beginning to be oversaturated to, um, to a certain degree. Definitely mm -hmm. the health-based product market um, yeah. is definitely becoming oversaturated. Um, that is why... I think a lot of these uh, a lot of these companies are turning to the more niche, more specific motivations that we talked about. Like you talked about gut health, and we mentioned a few others. Um, they're leaning towards them as ways to differentiate their their products. Um, is there kind of any example that that comes to mind of uh, of a product that you feel really answered the uh, the market need or like filled a, ga a gap there? Just to, yeah. to kind of solidify an example. 
Sure. That's a great question. I think that an example would be, and I, we may have mentioned this previously on the podcast, but I think it's a really good one and I want to speak about it here. So um, PepsiCo released a product, I guess it was last year now, or maybe even a year and a half ago um, on their Off the Eaten Path snack line. Um, and snacks is a, is a whole other category we could talk about for for health and the kind of correlation of convenience and healthy um, healthy eating and kind of drilling down into those niche categories within the kind of alignment with um, convenience, but they created this snack uh, within their popular off the eaten snack path uh, line, off little bit, off the eaten path snack line, um, and uh, it was based on seaweed. Um, and we just had this. Uh, you asked a really interesting question just a moment ago about if we're going to see these, uh, you know, more untraditional ingredients, let's say in the mainstream, especially in in the U.S. Um, and seaweed is one of those things that's kind of always hovered you know, around, um, it's not completely unfamiliar in the West, but it, it usually has its very specific categories, right? It's like very much centered in usually Asian cuisines, specifically in Japanese cuisines. Um, within the snacks world, there are, you know, the, the dried seaweed snacks that have kind of gained more traction in the U.S. over uh, the last couple of years. Um, so it's not something completely unknown. Uh, but what PepsiCo did that was really smart is that um, they kind of followed the pr- one of the primary tenets of innovation is that when you're introducing a, a new concept um, to attach it to something that is already um, familiar so that you kind of reach the, the greatest swath of consumers possible. Um, so you, you capture, you know, the people who are adventurous and willing to try new things. And um, one of the, I think, a really interesting stat that we've seen in, in Taste Rise over the last couple of months is that, um, you know, interest in adventurous or unique flavors is actually up 53% since the start of COVID. So, you know, you, you have a, a huge amount of people who are interested in uniqueness and adventurous. Um, so you're capturing those folks and you're also capturing the people who are a little bit more hesitant, right? Who are a little bit more run of the mill, um, aren't super interested in, you know, expanding out and for whom something like seaweed might be uh, kind of strange or, or unknown for them. Um, and the way that they're capturing those folks' attention is by attaching it to gut health, right? Which we just talked about has this huge growth over the last um, two years. And I would hazard a guess that pretty much anybody that you talk to, um, you know, understands the impact that food and beverage has at the very least on gut health, right? Um, and probably already knows about themselves, you know, one or two ingredients that they tend to avoid or they tend to specifically seek out to support gut health. Um, so this particular seaweed snack was really going back to your original question about oversaturation was really a smart move because they were able to marry, um, you know, the sweet spot here of an ingredient that's not completely unknown, right. Is, is known enough to be interesting. Um, but they're pairing it with something that is still, you know, relatively, I would say new in the mainstream gut health, but established really established enough to, to capture interest. So they created this really, um, I think brilliant combination. Um, but the thing that I really want to call out here is that, it's not that seaweed in and of itself is particularly interesting as a snack. It's not. It's that they were able to identify that their consumers that they wanted to target with their snack cared about gut health, right? So this correlation, again, with gut health or convenience, right? There's any number of things in this constellation that we could talk about. They identified that their consumers cared about gut health. They, they would care about gut health enough in the next year, right, to kind of outlast their innovation cycle. They were able to then understand um, and just mentioning this here that they use taste rise to facilitate this process. Um, they were able to understand that seaweed supports gut health and that's how it all came together. So it's really the sort of magnificent moment of innovation and deeply understanding their consumers' needs and, and almost um, anticipating what their tastes would then lead them towards uh, in the next year. So I think yeah. that for the for those CPGs that are worried about oversaturation or um, and rightfully so, right, or are facing an oversaturated market, especially as consumers 
uh, you know, healthy is not enough, as we said before, and consumers are looking for more things that are tailored towards gut health. I think being really intentional um, and thoughtful about how you understand your consumers and place them at the center of your innovation process, selecting the right ingredients to support the, you know, the bottom line why, um, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's how, how uh, companies can avoid oversaturation. I think uh, there's uh, there was a really interesting venture beat article about their process. Uh, maybe we can put that like in the show notes um, sure. or yeah, somewhere. Right Are show notes a thing? Are there a show notes? Show notes. Uh, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in charge uh, of that, so I will find out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hear no because I'm constantly listening to podcasts, and they say like, uh, "Oh yeah, you'll find all the links in the show notes." And I'm like, "Where? What?" Where do uh, I find these these hitherto <laughs> unknown, as I said a moment ago, show notes? So, um, you know, a lot of uh, people come to us uh, for you know our what we like to call our bread and butter, which are predictions and trend analysis, uh, which is kind of where we got our start and still uh, what we do uh, a lot of our time. So. Uh, the last thing you were talking about was uh, was snacks and the correlation between snacks and healthy eating. Um, so if we kind of look to the future, and uh, I know we have a bunch of stuff coming out about this in the, in the near future, but um, if we kind of look to the next few years, um, what trend do you think influences this... Um, this concept of snacks that are that are good for you or snacks that are better for you um, or, you know, the correlation between healthy eating and snacks? Yeah, excellent question. Um, I think that... Do you like that I validate all of your questions? Great question, Ron. Amazing question. Can't wait to answer. <laughs> now, now I feel um, like I'm contributing <laughs> to this podcast, which can easily be just like Miriam telling you things. No, no, no. You are a <laughs> crucial part of this. Um, so I think that uh, kind of... It's actually a well-timed question as well because it kind of sums up everything that I've been that I've been discussing here already, or we've been discussing here already. Um, I think that the primary trend will be, again, using this word constellation. I'm a big space nerd, but it is relevant here. Um, this that brands that invest in calling out a constellation of functional health benefits in their products are going to see long-term success. Um, so when we talked before about kind of drilling down into these niche areas of health, and we talked about focusing on gut health or focusing on skin health, blah, 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 blah right? All of that good stuff. Um, I think we're going to be seeing kind of triple whammy, double whammy ingredients and products on the market. Um, so a really great just anecdotal example, and I think we spoke about this maybe last week on the podcast, um, but that awesome kind of CBD infused L-theanine product that I had, it was a, a caffeinated, um, almost like a tea drink that called out four or five different motivations very, very clearly um, targeting different aspects of functional health on the bottle. Um, and anecdotally, I found myself reading that and, and taking great you know, interest in the impacts that it would have on me. Um, and purchasing it for that exact reason. Um, and I love when we see this alignment between our own behavior as consumers and what we're seeing in the market and in the research. Um, so I think, you know, a, a great example of that, and I'll, I'll pull one out here, is CMOS. Um, so CMOS is something that we identified in our 2022 trend prediction report. Um, it's definitely been rising and, and was well spotted because it's something that's definitely emerging in the market and is something to keep an eye on. Um, CMOS is particularly rising in interest for fertility. Um, so that's grown 15% year over year in consumer interest over the last year. Uh, but but the, the sub-segment of consumers in the U.S., at least, um, who are interested in fertility is pretty small, right? So if you were going to put all of your eggs in a basket of a product based on CMOS and just call out fertility, you'd have a pretty small 
audience for that product. You could do it, right? And maybe that maybe your product's audience is exactly that audience that cares about that. But if you're looking to get more bang for your buck and interested in kind of reaching again that larger swath of consumers, um, you're gonna want to call out other things like, you know, sleep improvement is up 72% year over year. Um you know, CMOS is often used in beverages. So what kind of, you know, functional health motivations are consumers turning to beverages for? And how could you correlate that to CMOS and other paired ingredients in there? So um, I think that's just an example of, of an ingredient that we're going to see really shine. Um, but the biggest takeaway here is not CMOS. The biggest takeaway here is that find an ingredient, um, you know, for if you're interested in, in being a part of this movement over the next uh, year or so, um, find an ingredient, do your research, figure out what kind of functional health benefits that it has uh, impact on. I will add a side note here that, you know, of course, you can't be making functional health claims without having the actual backing for it. And the regulation for these kind of claims is a little bit um, all over the place right now in the US. So not making any recommendations here to go crazy and just write a bunch of things on your packaging. Of course, do your due diligence and make sure that you're doing this legally. Um, but, you know, communicate to your consumers, tell them what they want to hear and what is actually reflected in your product. Um, and don't shy away from, and this is a great example that I love, don't shy away, going back to the CMOS, um, don't shy away from calling out specific health needs that used to be, quote unquote, behind the curtain, right? Which is just a really nice way of saying like, a little bit embarrassing for consumers. Um, so things like, you know, gut health or even bloating, indigestion, gas, all that stuff that people don't like to talk about. Um, consumers yeah. are becoming much more curious about how to assuage those needs or, or find solutions to those needs. Um, and they want to see it on packaging, right? Um, and the brands that are able to call that out and say, hey, this is, you know, I'm even thinking about this right now. In my pantry, um, we have a box of tea. I think that's called like tummy soother tea or something like that, specifically for bloating and indigestion. Um, and that's a great example of, you know, a brand going all in on the benefits that they know that their ingredients provide. They're gaining consumer popularity and loyalty um, by doing that. So wrapping up here, bottom line, be clear and transparent about the specific health benefits of your product or your ingredients. Um, and consumers will really respond. Uh, you know, healthiness is no longer enough. And that is the answer to your excellent question of what trend will come up. It is the trend of kind of creating a constellation of functional health benefits that will speak to consumer sophisticated and complex needs. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> and I don't know if that was on purpose, but I like how uh, you were talking about fertility. And then you immediately said both uh, eggs in a basket and bang for oh. your buck. <laughs> it was not on purpose, Ron, but I appreciate the call out. Um, and I hope that our listeners appreciate it. Um, did you see, we were talking about you being a space nerd. Did you see the Sagittarius A pictures? Came Did out. I see the Sagittarius A pictures? Come on, oh of course God. I saw the Sagittarius I, A pictures. <laughs> I went from like, uh, I watched a documentary about black holes on Netflix the other Which week one? and just like um, The Edge of What We Know, something like that. Yep. It's mm -hmm. about, mm -hmm. yeah. I've seen it um, a couple times. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then like I immediately, all right, like I guess I'm a like black hole fan now. And then like the rest, the rest of that week was just like, yeah, reading about black holes. And I was like, oh, the amazing discoveries are happening right now. I would say a good 50% of my communication with my fiance, shout out to John. The next time we record this podcast, we will be married. So putting that out there, 50% um, of John and I's communication is solely, I would say, about uh, things going on in space. Like, hey, did you <laughs> see this new photo that just dropped hey did you hear about the rover but <laughs> and, and is that like uh does he participate in it or is it like that's cool miriam that's no nice. no he's equally <laughs> a space nerd like i'm saying it is a two-way two-way street <laughs> all right <laughs> yeah uh no that is very unlike the 
conversations that I have with my wife about like my nerd stuff, which usually can be filled <laughs> up with like, uh-huh. Sure. Cool. That's great. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So anyway, kind of bringing it back. Um, sure. Yeah. I think that this whole conversation about health being um, uh, such a broad category that now needs to be broken up to, to very specific niches uh, that a lot of brands can use to uh, differentiate their products is not going away anytime soon. I think um, there are themes uh, to each, let's say, let's call it like a season or just like mm. a period of time that we're seeing. Um, we were talking about sustainability a lot on the previous season. We're talking about health a lot in this season. Um, I think that this is a theme that's that's here to stay at least for the foreseeable future. Um, and I think that we're just about to see such um, such massive changes in everything we eat and drink over the next five or 10 years. Um, yeah. And this is going to be one of the biggest drivers to these, the uh, education, the sophistication of consumers and the way that, um, that uh, consumer packaged goods are going to be using these drivers as differentiators for, for their product. Um, it's also kind add- of a really... Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I want to I want to add just two quick notes on that mm-hmm. before I forget. Um, the first is that yes, that we're going to see this absolutely driving CPG's consumer packaged goods over the next year, new product development, all that good stuff. And um, we're also going to see this on menus. This is something that's going to think going to be guiding restaurant innovation as well and menu innovation, and specifically calling out the benefits of food and beverage um, on menus. We're already seeing that specifically in cafes and smoothie bars, um, which makes sense, right? As beverages are this really interesting canvas of innovation for functional health, but we're going to be seeing it across the board everywhere. I firmly believe that. Um, And then the second point that I want to make is that, uh, you know, these niche categories within health and wellness, which I don't even know if niche is the right word because niche sort of implies this static nature or like a small static nature. And I I don't know that it's that it's, it's, I think a lot more dynamic and a lot more changing, but the point here is that, um, it's not enough to just say, okay, health is, is kind of fracturing into all of these different concepts. Right. And like, let's just let's just do it, right? Um, the point here more is that you really need to be following and tracking um, which health motivations uh, are rising and falling. And as you, I think, just beautifully said, there are seasons to this, right? That there are cycles and there are you know, peaks and valleys of these things. So for example, immunity, right? You could listen to everything we just said and said, okay, great. Immunity is a sub-faction of health. Um, we should definitely invest in it. And you know, there are so many ingredients that are aligned with immunity. Um, and my answer to that would be, no, you need to actually figure out, does your consumer care about immunity? And overwhelmingly, the data is saying, you know, hey, compared to three years ago, pre-pandemic, let's say, sure, immunity is higher in interest, right? That's become an established part of, I think, of our cultural consciousness is that immunity is an important thing. But it's 59% already lower than the uh, kind of Pre, like at the beginning of COVID, right? Yeah. Um, so we're seeing already a pretty significant drop in interest in immunity. Um, so all of this, you know, the big takeaway here is that you need to be tracking what your consumers and specifically who your consumers are within the larger world of consumers, right? If you're particularly building products for parents or you're building products for Gen X, Gen Z, millennials, baby boomers, you know, women, mm-hmm. men, anybody, right? Um, that it's really important that you understand right now uh, which motivations are, are significant for them um, and why. And if you can figure that out, then you're able to, I think, you know, the word prediction is a little bit of a tricky one, but you're able to anticipate um, what kind of products and ingredients and concepts are going to resonate with those claims, um, you know, down the road. Awesome. I think that's a good note to wrap up on. Uh, so thank you sure. so much for, for this research that uh, you've done. Uh, and thank you so much to the amazing team that uh, makes this podcast uh, possible. Um, 
I will not name them this time because I keep getting criticized on if I say their names with like an American accent or like a Israeli accent. So we hope this has been uh, useful for you. (laughs) And I will see you on the next one. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Bye.